And hey, we're going to be using our Bibles a lot this morning, so if you don't have one in front of you or on your phone, we've got a number back here on our resource table. Feel free to grab one. If you don't have one at all, uh, please keep it and let it be our gift to you today. Also, we've got a number of Gospel of John journals back there as well. So if you're a journaler, uh, I'd really encourage you to grab one of those as well. Uh, All right, uh, John chapter 10. We're going to read a portion of the text we read last week. uh, And we're going to kind of zero in on a piece of this that we did not have time to get into last week. So uh, John 10, we're going to start in verse 7 and go through verse 16. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Let's stop there. The word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness but the darkness has not overcome it. That's how John began this book. It's how he began his gospel, by affirming the deity and the eternality of Christ. He says, before any of this existed, he, Christ, was. But then he moves to the incarnation itself, and he says that God became a man, this Christ, this Messiah became a man as Jesus of Nazareth. And John says that in him is real life. And that real life is a light that shines on humanity. And it's so bright and powerful that darkness cannot overcome it. It cannot consume it. And John carries this theme of light throughout his entire gospel. One notable passage is John 3.19, where he says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In other words, John tells us the light of Christ has come into the world and the light shines on everything it comes into contact with because darkness can't consume it, it can't overcome it. But, but some, on encountering the light of Christ, run back into the darkness because they love their own sin more than the true life that is in Christ. 
But this is also counterbalanced by those who encounter the light and gladly receive it and, and like step into it. John 3, 21, a couple verses later says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If you come out of the darkness into the light, when that light fully shines on you, it will reveal that the things that you have done in coming to the light, you haven't actually done on your own, but rather God has been at work in you. Before John said those words about light and darkness in chapter 3, Jesus referenced a pretty obscure Old Testament passage from the book of Numbers as he was talking with the Pharisee Nicodemus. Anybody read Numbers recently? Right? No. No, that's, that's the place where people stop. They're like, they're, I'm doing the Bible in a year until I get to Numbers, and then I'm out. Um, but Jesus references this obscure passage in Numbers 21. And I want to read this to you. And, and just to set the scene a little bit, the setting of this passage was that the Israelites had come out of Egypt. They had been freed from slavery, but then they found themselves, because of their sin, wandering in the Sinai desert, uh, dealing with the elements, little food, little water, having to fight the various tribes that they meet along the way. And uh, this is where we pick up Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. It says, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. I think Jesus presents that story to Nicodemus as a sort of summation of the story of mankind in light of what Jesus had come to do. Here's what I mean. A, a summation of the story of man from the garden all the way to Christ. And, and here's the basic plot. God had done an incredible thing. He freed Israel from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Uh, he sent a savior to them, right, in many ways. Um, even though this person, Moses, was not God himself, they emerged from the waters of the Red Sea, kind of born anew. A free people headed to a promised land that God had lined up for them. But despite everything that God had done for them, they were unsatisfied with what he had given them and they wanted more. In other words, it says they sinned by being unsatisfied with God's good gifts. So as a result of their sin, God sent a curse among them, poisonous snakes, but he also provided a way for them to be saved. 
Not a way, notice, for them to be saved from being bitten and infected with poison, but a way to be saved from the poison itself. And the way that he provided does not make any sense. He told Moses to make a bronze snake and to put it on a pole, and whenever somebody got bitten, they could look at the bronze snake and live. Now, goodness, (laughs) that's a weird story, isn't it? And there's a lot of things there that are strange to me, um, if I'm being honest. Like, it's strange to me that not all that long before, the people had gotten into trouble for making an image and putting it on a pole and looking at it. Um, Not to mention the fact that it is a snake itself, which if we are going back to the garden, Remember what happened there? So this whole story is, is, is very strange, but, but hopefully, though, you see some of the parallels to the garden. Like everything here begins with God's grace. He creates the world and everything in it. He makes the man and the woman and puts them in a beautiful garden. But the man and the woman are unsatisfied with God's good gifts, and they want more. They think he's keeping things from them. They sin by disobeying God. And a curse is then sent among mankind, a poison in the form of sin and death. And everyone is infected by it. But God also provides a way out, a Savior in the form of Christ. And all who look to Christ will be saved from the poison. That's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus in chapter 3. He says, I am the snake lifted up in the wilderness, and all who look to me will have eternal life. I am that. And that's what he's been doing over and over again throughout this book. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am like living water. I am the good shepherd. I am the doorway of the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. By the way, uh, I was just noticing that the things the people grumbled about not having in Numbers 21 are things that Jesus expressly claims to be in John's gospel. Bread and water. Now, there's a ton there that we could unpack and explore with that story, but but here's my question. For the snake-bitten Israelites, poison-infected Israelites, what exactly saved them? Was it the bronze snake on a pole? Or was it the fact that they voluntarily chose to look at it? Was it this symbol or object? Or was it their personal decision to look at the object? I think the answer is both and also neither. Here's what I mean. Ultimately, it was the power of God that saved them. They could not save themselves. It was neither the snake on a pole nor their choice to look at the snake that saved them. It was God. It was his power. But the way that God ordained for them to be saved from the venom was to choose to look at a snake on a pole. God's power is the real agent of change and is the real agent of change 
but nothing happens unless we look to Christ. So we come to John 10, our text today. Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice, that being the voice of the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him and know his voice. Jesus says he is the good shepherd and that he has come to gather his sheep from the fold. The language that he uses indicates he's not talking about all the sheep that are in the pen. He's come to get his sheep out of the pen. And his sheep are characterized by the fact that they recognize his voice. Now, the fold or the pen that he seems to be talking about here, um, I think, is the pen of Israel. Um, and when they come to the light, as it were, as John has said so many times, they recognize it as something desirable. This language suggests that these sheep are already his prior to him calling them. And when he does call them, they recognize his voice and respond to him. Uh, or again, to use this language we've already seen, they, they come to the light rather than running away from the light. And when they come to the light and it fully exposes them, what is ultimately revealed is they didn't happen to just make a good decision or the right choice, but that God had already been at work in them. Somehow they knew the voice of the good shepherd when they heard it. So what Jesus seems to be describing here is what is often known as the doctrine of election uh, and predestination. And depending on your faith background, it's possible you grew up in a tradition like me uh, where this was never talked about. Uh, or it's possible you grew up in a faith tradition where this was talked about all the time. Um, wherever you're coming from this morning, uh, there's a reality with this, and it's that it is a controversial and sometimes polarizing doctrine. Um, I think most of the time, though, if it is controversial, it's more about how it's being presented um, or the tone with which it is being presented or sometimes even the particular person who is presenting it. Um, and we don't have time today to do like an exhaustive survey of all of the passages in Scripture that relate to election. Uh, but there are many across the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, but I do want you to see that this is a thoroughly biblical doctrine, and it is certainly a very Johnine uh, doctrine. It is something that comes up over and over again in John's gospel. We've already seen it. We will see it again. Um, and, but then also that our response to it should be a response of joy and gratitude and wonder. We're going to primarily look, though, at what John's gospel has to say about this and also ask, why should it matter to us? Uh, let me start by saying that election is not uh, something that first century Christians came up with, uh, nor is it something that the Protestant reformers like John Calvin came up with. In fact, Calvin, who is often associated with this doctrine, uh, he was really a student of St. Augustine, uh, who was writing a thousand years at least before him. In actuality, though, the roots of this idea are in Judaism. 
as the Jews looked at their history, they saw a sovereign God who was providentially affecting people and history for his own purposes. In fact, the Jews believed that God was proactively guiding history according to his will. And to some extent, how can you not when you read the Old Testament? The Old Testament makes the case that God created everything and that everything belongs to him. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. It's all his. There is nothing that you have that is just yours. Also along the way, God has clearly affected history by choosing certain people to be his people and to do his work. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Israel itself. You will be my people and I will be your God. But, but go on. David, Jonah, Isaiah, I mean really all the prophets. The story of the Old Testament is a story of a God who is accomplishing his providential will while still allowing mankind the freedom to exercise their own moral will. In other words, God is somehow big enough to allow human beings to choose to act against him, to sin, to disobey, to follow their own paths, even to worship false gods, without somehow messing up his plans. For example, from the beginning, the Old Testament tells us that a Messiah is coming, one who will crush the head of the enemy, and nothing the people do, no amount of wickedness or disobedience on the part of God's chosen people seem to in any way thwart God's plan. So the Jewish Christians, which would describe all of the apostles, they are coming into faith in Christ with a grid that already sees God as being in full control of everything, capable of doing whatever he wants, and as providentially guiding history to this point where a Messiah has now come. And it's not something that he does reactively either. As you go back through the scriptures, he's been talking about this for a long, long time preparing people for it. Now, here's what Jesus does in this text um, that would have been shocking to the Jews. He basically says that while God chose Israel to be his people and to be the conduit through which the Messiah would come, he, Jesus now, is creating a new flock, a new Israel, as it were. And in this new flock, he is choosing and calling people from Israel, yes, but also from the various folds of the Gentiles. Not just the historic people of God, but all people. He's creating a new nation, as it were, a new people for himself that today we simply know as the church, those who have followed Christ in faith. But we are people who ask, why, aren't we? Uh, why is one person a follower of Jesus, but another isn't? Why am I a follower of Jesus, but maybe my sibling, who grew up in the same house as me and had the same experiences that I had as a kid, isn't? You told a Jew that when the Messiah came, some within the nation of Israel would hear and respond to the voice of Christ, but that others would not, that they would choose their own sin instead. That probably would have made sense. That was their story as a nation, after all. 
Some heard and responded to God's voice in faith, like Abraham. Others didn't, like King Ahaz, for example. Why? Well, some theologians think of God as having what is often called a providential will, but then as also having a moral will. God's providential will relates to his grand plan of restoration for humanity. Um, and that he is working out all of that through Christ. Despite the wickedness and disobedience of the Israelites in the Old Testament, God's providential will, as we said, was never upset. It was never upended. And he is fully able to accomplish what he wants uh, or, and, and, and what he has wanted in the past, namely sending his son Jesus. God's moral will, though, is a reflection of his own character. It's a mirror on what he is like. The essential statement to Israel is this, be holy for I am holy. It's a, it's a high bar, uh, and it's a bar that we are incapable of hitting outside of his help. As we prayed this morning, God, it is impossible without your help to please you. But at no point do we see God somehow forcing his holiness or imposing his holiness on a person who really wants to chase after their own sin or their own path. From the garden onward, God makes his standard of holiness and obedience well known, but he gives mankind a moral free will to either go with him or not. And as we know, many do not. But for those who do... John's gospel, as we've said, makes the case that they haven't simply made a good choice, but that God has been at work within them. When the light reveals what's really going on, it shows that God has been drawing them to Christ. Here's what Jesus said to the crowd after he fed the 5,000, and they came and found him. Do you remember? They came and found him, and they were looking for more miracles and more food. And here's what he says in John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Day. So Jesus basically says, listen, the Father has people prepared who, unlike many of you guys, will see me and believe. They will hear the voice of the shepherd and recognize it and follow me. Notice, by the way, that the language here is very similar to the passage about the snake on a pole. Jesus said that he is the bread of life, the thing that the Israelites were craving and longing for, um, the thing that they grumbled about not having in Numbers 21. And then verse 40, this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. But the people don't like these words, and they grumble against Jesus, again, much like the Jews in Numbers 21. They grumble against Jesus, and so Jesus elaborates in verse 41 of chapter 6. He says, so, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
what in the world? Who, who are you claiming to be, right? They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. I think the key verse there is verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So who comes to Christ? Well, those whom the Father draws. But who does the Father draw? He says, those who have heard and learned from him. I, I really take that to mean that Jesus is saying, not just those who have intensely studied the scriptures or the Torah, because that's something the Pharisees had certainly done, but those Jews who are seeking to discern the true voice of God. This is part of the issue Jesus has with the Pharisees. They know the scriptures backwards and forwards. But their intentions largely have not been to follow God, but to pursue their own paths. Here's how he put it in chapter 5, in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. The Father has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. He's talking to Jews. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. Wait, these are people searching the scriptures? I mean, Jewish people searching the scriptures, but they don't have God's word abiding in them? Jesus seems to be saying, you think the scriptures are going to save you. You think the scriptures are going to give you life. But that's not where life comes from. That's what's known as biblicism today. You see these Christians where it's like, it kind of seems like you worship the Bible. Like it kind of seems like you think the Bible is your savior. And this definitely would have characterized the mode of the Pharisees. Guys, we don't find life in the scriptures, right? The scriptures simply give us the truth about where real life comes from. The Bible itself, the artifact of scripture, is not in and of itself salvific. This is what Jesus is saying. The scriptures won't give you life, but they do testify about me. And if you come to me, you will find life. Also recognize the people Jesus is talking to again are Jews, not Gentiles. The ones who have possessed the law and the prophets for centuries. All of these prophecies about the coming Messiah, they have had. If anyone should recognize the Messiah, it should be them. But Jesus says, the things I've said to you, the things my father has said to you in his word, they're not in here. They're not abiding within you. They're not fueling you and guiding you. And so when you see me, you don't see the fulfillment of the things God has already told you. 
But Jesus says, if you do, if you come to the light, it is because God has drawn you to the light. And then also it's because you responded with belief rather than running away. It's because these things that he has been saying for so long to you Jewish people, for some of you, it has taken root within you. And when you see me, you do start to put some of these pieces together. So does that mean that God didn't draw to Christ those who didn't believe? Uh, Some out there would say yes, that God draws some but not others. A popular passage to consider is Romans 8, 29 and 30. This is Paul, who writes about this a ton. Um, Here he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know, the typical way that that is interpreted is to say that God in his omniscience, in his all-knowingness, knows who ultimately will come to faith and who will not. And for those who he knows will ultimately come to faith, he draws them to Christ. Still begins and ends with him and his power. Uh, But I'll be the first to admit, guys, this is extremely mysterious. And the reason why is because we do not know the mind of God, nor can we know the mind of God, nor can we fully understand the mechanics of how he accomplishes his will. And any attempts that we might make to explain the mechanics of how God works, um, which we can only do in finite human terms, have to just seem childlike to him compared to what is actually happening in the realm of his kingdom. Does that make, that make sense? All that to say, if you find this hard to understand, I'm right there with you. What we want to rely on is that God is the one who saves, not my own works and not your own works. I'll I'll throw one more log onto this fire. In John 12, which we haven't gotten to yet in our study, Jesus speaks of being lifted up. And he concludes by saying to the people, while you have the light, believe the light so that you might become sons of the light. So he's appealing to crowds to believe in him. And he's kind of pleading with them. He's saying, my time here is limited. I won't be here much longer. Believe. And and then here's what John says. This is John's commentary on Jesus's words. This is chapter 12, verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, the people, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 
So John says that this rejection that Jesus faces is not because he was not a good orator or a compelling preacher. It was something that God also foreknew, that he would come to his own and his own would not receive him. And he prophesied through Isaiah in the Old Testament that this was what would happen. The light has shone on the people, John says, but they loved the darkness more than the light. And that the continual rejection of Christ results in God, as so often happens in the scripture, it results in God giving the people over to their own sin and rejection. In other words, God providentially says, you want your own path? You can have it. I need to wrap this up, but we will continue to see this topic of God's providence pop up in John. It really is a central theme in many ways here. And and so here's what I want to close with. There's a lot here that may seem confusing or circuitous to you. You are not alone in feeling that way. Uh, I think most people who are being honest do. But, But here's this. If God really is God, if he really is this God who somehow spoke creation into being and made us out of the dirt, then it is just illogical that we would have the ability to understand him fully at all times, right? And it doesn't seem to be John's intention at all to explain in a like systematic way the mechanics of this doctrine. Here's what his intention does seem to be, though. This gospel, it is believed, this book of the Bible, this gospel was not written simply for the church, for its own edification, but rather it's believed that this was primarily an, an evan- evangelical treatise or an evangelistic treatise. John's intention is to reveal the good shepherd so that we might hear his voice and respond in faith. Why? Because that is the mission that Christ gave to the church. That we would go with his good news, with his voice, as it were, his gospel filled with the Holy Spirit to call people to faith. You see, throughout history, God in his providence has been using his people to accomplish his purposes. And good grief, how many people over the last 2,000 years heard the voice of their shepherd and responded in faith after reading or hearing the gospel of St. John? It is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it can pierce through even the most calloused hearts. What Justin read to us this morning was the Apostle Paul saying, guys, if there's anybody here that should not be a follower of Jesus, it is me. Because you know what? Not only was I just kind of an immoral guy in some ways, I justified some of my immorality with religion. Because I was a great Jew. And then when Jesus showed up, even though I sat at the feet of the Pharisee Gamaliel, who was a well-known teacher, even though I knew the law, 
When Jesus showed up, I didn't recognize him as the Messiah. In fact, you know what I did? I worked with other people to kill people who were following Jesus. And guess what God had for me, Paul says? Grace. And if anything, God saved me, he says, so that other people would look at my life and go, well, good grief, then maybe there's a chance for me as well. Maybe God could also have grace and forgiveness in my life. His truth, his gospel, his light can pierce even the most calloused hearts. Today, guys, if you hear his voice, as the psalmist said, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not become like the Israelites of the Old Testament that we read about in Jeremiah, who had become wise in their evil and so showed themselves to be fools in the face of God. And recognize that Christ has come so that we could see the light, believe the light, and find real life. Do not run away from the light. Let it expose you so that all might see that God has been at work within you. And so that we might rejoice and give him praise and glory. That we all would be a people who look to the Savior lifted up on a pole so that we might be healed. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, uh, we love you. And Lord, we confess this morning uh, in the face of all of this uh, information in scripture that your ways are higher than our ways. And yet, God, we want to proclaim this morning that you are good, and we see your goodness. We see you as the good shepherd in that you sent your only son, Jesus, to call us out of our darkness into light. But also that if we truly have chosen our own sin, Father, that you do not force us in your grace to somehow be holy. But Lord, I pray that that would spark within us some true introspection. Are, are we a people who's, who finds your word abiding in us? Are we resting on your truth and looking to Christ and not the things of this world to save us and to reconcile us to you, to give us eternal life. It is illogical that a, a bronze snake on a pole would do anything. And it is also illogical that a human being on a cross could do anything. And, and yet if that human being is also you, if that human being is also fully God, well, then suddenly it's a different story. 
Lord, would you would you show us what it is? Show us what it looks like, Father, to truly continue to step into your light. And I pray that as we do, it will result in praise and honor to you. And it is in your name. Amen. Stand with us.